Okay, uh, we are still in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, in our uh, Address the Mess series. Now today I'm going to skip our normal brief recap and just kind of let you know what we covered last week because we have a lot to cover and we're in one of my favorite chapters. Uh, so last week we began looking at the biblical definition of love. Okay, now uh, we looked at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 where it says love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous, love does not brag, and is not arrogant. Now when you hear these words immediately think of what? Weddings, right? Because it's always using weddings. But we, as we learned last week, that's not always the case. As a matter of fact, that wasn't even his intent when he wrote it. But love in verses 4 through 8 uh, comes from the Greek word agape. Have anybody ever heard that word? Agape. Uh, it means sacrificial and unconditional love. Biblically, it refers to a love that God is, that God shows, and that God gives. That's how it's described biblically. Uh, agape love is always present in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is who indwells believers. So it's that agape love that enables believers to be obedient and productive and to love the people that they serve. Now, Paul used agape in Galatians 5.22 when he was describing the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Galatians 5.22 said, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? You can answer that. The fruit of the Spirit is, is love. <laughs> wow. We'll edit that and make it sound good. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience. <laughs> Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, we also discussed how love is an action. Love is an action. And every action that love produces glorifies God. Now, in verse 4, Paul started describing uh, the actions that are associated with this agape style of love. And he began with love is patient and love is kind. And it was actually my intention last week to cover both of those. I did not. Um, so... We basically only covered love as patient. Uh, and just as a recap, the, the Greek word for patient is makrothromeo, and it means to delay. And what he's talking about there is delaying the natural reaction to anger and frustration. Now this week we're going to uh, pick up where we left off in verse 4, uh, but I'm not saying we'll finish it. We'll give it a shot. That's my intention, but I'm not saying we will. Because we only briefly got to cover love as kind. So today we're going to take a closer look at its meaning. Now have you guys ever heard the saying... A proof of life. You guys like watch mystery shows and crime shows, and see, right? Okay, yeah. Well, a proof of life is a document that contains confidential information that can be used to confirm whether a person is still alive in the case of kidnapping or abduction or detention. So, in verses four through eight, a Paul is is uh, giving his readers the ability to offer evidence that they know what the definition and practical application of love looks and acts like. So, I titled today's message "Proof of Love." And we're caught up. Okay, so let's jump in to love is kind. Now, the Greek word for kind used in this verse uh, is krestuomai, and it means to act with kindness and mercy. To act with kindness and mercy. And people who are kind will even respond to those who wish to do them harm with goodness. That's kind of the connotations that word carries, that you're kind to everyone, even people who don't deserve it. Even, you ever been in a drive-thru and... I mean, I know you have, but you know where I'm going with this, right? If you want to see if you're saved or not, go to drive throughs Because have you ever been in a drive through and literally everything you order is not in a bag? Anybody ever had that happen to them? Or you ever been in a drive through and you get the totally wrong order? Or you get in a drive through because it's supposed to be, the whole intention was speed, is what it was supposed to be, right? Not always the case, but the kind of the kindness that we see here means that we're going to be kind even when they forget the pickles. 
even when you get a Coke instead of a Sprite, you're going to still be kind to everyone. Because Jesus was kind uh, even in death by being willing to pay for the world's sin. I mean, the, he was willing to die for the same world that rejected and tortured and falsely accused him. Think about that. I can't imagine dying for someone who would torture me and I knew would eventually murder me. And yet he would, the people who were driving the spikes through his wrist, he was dying for them. So his kindness surpasses anything we can even imagine. Now, kindness and grace, I don't know if we realize this, but kindness and grace are actually two sides of the same coin, right? They're, kind, they're actually two sides of the same coin because they mutually coexist, those two things, right? The word grace in the Greek is the word charis, charis, and it means unmerited favor or something you don't deserve. Um, like, for instance, receiving something you don't deserve is receiving an act of grace. And giving someone something they don't deserve, uh, deserve is also giving an act of grace. So grace is getting or receiving or giving something that you do not deserve. So our greatest motivation for serving Christ should actually be gratitude for His love and His grace. I mean, we should be grateful that He showed us kindness and grace despite our sinfulness. And sometimes I think we forget who we were and who we still are given the right criteria. Sometimes I think we forget that we don't deserve the eternal life we have. Because no matter how righteous you think you are, how long you've been saved, how many good deeds you can list on a document, it doesn't matter. None of us deserve heaven. It's just the truth. None of us deserve it. And if you're honest with yourself, you know those deep, dark moments that no one knows but you? Those moments when you have thoughts you wish you didn't have or when someone makes you angry? Imagine if people could see the darkness in you when those things flare up then they would know what we should know, and that is we don't deserve heaven. No one deserves it. But the greatest act of, great, of gratitude that we can do as, as believers, probably the single greatest thing we can do to show God that we are grateful is to be committed to it, committed to faithfully serving Him, committed to serving the gospel. And in Romans 12:1, I love how Paul says this. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy what? sacrifice acceptable to God, which is what? More than three of you, which is what? There you go, your spiritual service of worship. Nobody wants to say that because you might be accountable to it, right? But that is your spiritual service of worship. Gratitude should make us want to serve Him. Now, personally, I, I don't know about you guys, but personally, I'll never forget what He brought me from. I will never forget that. I remember having discussions with my wife. She was already a believer and, and praying that I would be. And I remember telling her, I just don't think I can be saved. Because all I could think about is what I'd done. I couldn't think about how big the grace of God was. Or how much more powerful His love was than my sin. I couldn't think of those things. All I could think about was all the things that people knew about me. And even worse, the things they didn't know that I had done. But to me, it just didn't seem possible. So when I actually surrendered my life to Christ, and I felt that burden lift, I knew right then and right there that I was going to dedicate my life to him because I did not think for one second he would ever give me eternal life. I just didn't believe that. I didn't understand that it wasn't about me. It was about him and his love, not about me and my sin. So I just don't understand, you know, how we don't first step after we get saved, dive in with being committed to servant. Now, being kind, this is kind of strange because being kind is a small but important part of the equation for a grateful servant. You can't really be a grateful servant and not be kind to people. You can't be an effective servant and not be kind to people. Let me explain that. Have you ever met the believer, maybe before you were saved or when you were saved, who knows, that 
is just a jerk. You ever met them? Raise your hand if you met a jerk believer. If they're with you, point at them. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, I'm just kidding. No, but we've all met believers who make you not want to go to church, right? We've all met them. And, you know, I've shared this story, but it's funny. I, both of my experiences of good experience and bad experience with believers before I became one was on a school bus. I'm not kidding you. The worst experience I had was there was this Christian lady, big parentheses, and she was like the very outspoken one, you know, wear the t-shirts, get the bumper stickers, and that's fine, you know, the WWJD, remember that, the shirts, you know, I don't know if she actually knew what it meant, and I'll explain that here in a minute, but she was always judging me, judging everybody, if you'd say a bad word, she'd call you out, she called me out on the bus for saying a bad word one time in front of everybody, and, and proclaimed that I was going to hell, I was 14, you know, and here's the thing, I went to a church that, I mean, they taught me two things in 22 years. There's a hell, and I am definitely going. That's what I learned at the church I went to. So I was like, no newsflash, lady. I know. You know, she was telling me. But she stands up and tells me I'm going to hell. And so I proceeded to share a few things with her that was not the gospel. But I'll say this much. When I got off the bus, I thought, I am never going to church. Not with people like that. Well, then I had another lady who was a bus driver who, the first day I met her, I walked on the bus. She had this warm and welcoming smile. First day. I got on the bus. And this might shock you, but I was not the, the best, you know, person to have ride your bus. Because I got in a lot of stuff. I was always trying to see if I could get stuff to stick on the mirror they looked back with. Yeah, I got in a lot of trouble on the bus. I'm not even going to share all that stuff because your opinion of me will not go up. But no matter what I did, this lady was nice to me. And it actually, I started thinking to myself, what can I do to make her mean to me? Because it felt weird that she was always nice to me. And always showed me love and always asked how I was doing and always asked about my family. And she could tell when I was struggling and she would say, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. And, I, you know, if you're not a part of church or you've not been raised in the church culture, that's weird to hear sometimes, isn't it? You know I mean? I didn't, I didn't even know what to say. I'm like, thanks. I mean, I know what to say. But it did warm me. And so from that point on, see, I was raised to think that Christians looked a certain way. I didn't realize that Christianity is judged by what's inside, not what's outside. And so I remember it was hard for me to see her as a believer because she didn't dress the way my church said you should dress, right? But she showed so much love to me that by the time, you know, I stopped riding her bus, when I thought of a Christian, I thought of her, right? And when I went, uh, when I first started looking and searching for God, uh, which is ironic, he wasn't lost, I was. Um, but I told you guys, I stopped at this little church one night for some reason unknown to me. I don't know why, I just felt drawn to this church. I was on my way back from a softball game. I had my jersey on that said, Hillbilly Posse, don't ask. And, you know, uh, I was young, and, you know, I, and so I went in and sat down, and this preacher starts preaching, and he was from another state. He was there. I didn't know what a revival was. I just knew it was Tuesday and the lights were on the church. I had to check that out. And, he basically started preaching my life to me. Has that ever happened to anybody? If someone's preaching, you're going, who narked on me? Because the first thing I thought was, oh man, my dad probably knows this guy. Because everything he's talking about is me. You know? And so I started looking for reasons to get out of Dodge. And I didn't even have to go there. I'm the one that put myself in that situation. And I tried to sit in the back behind the lady with the biggest hair so he wouldn't be able to see me. But he could still see me. 
and I remember standing up and thinking, I got to get out of here. Why should I even, why should I stay here? What if they're nuts? And I looked in the front row and that bus driver, the lady who I thought of as a godlike image, turned around and smiled and waved at me. Tell me that's not a God thing. You know what I mean? So, you know, we all know people who are believers who are kind and unkind, but it's really important. You can't be an effective servant if you're not kind. See, if we want to draw people to Jesus, we need to do more than just talk about God's love. The lady who told me I was going to hell talked about God's love, but I sure never felt it on earth. You know, as believers, we need to learn to show people the characteristics of God's love, of God's love, which is exactly what Paul's trying to do here in chapter 13, because it's that unconditional love of Jesus that actually convinces us to believe, right? When we find out that he loves us despite us, when we find out that that he doesn't care what people think of us and he doesn't care who we are or what we've done. He just desires a relationship with us like a parent does their child. When we realize that there's that great a love out there, that's what convinces us to believe, right? And I say unconventional, you know, or un unconditional love because, you know, he even offered it to the people who hated him, which is beyond me. He just even offered it to the people who hated him. There's an old saying that says you attract more flies with honey than vinegar. Anybody ever hear that? why you'd want to attract flies, I don't know. But the Bible has something very similar in Proverbs 15.1. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. That's very, very true. So showing patience and kindness only to friends is not that big a deal. Everybody does that. People who don't believe are usually pretty nice to their family and their friends, right? That, that's not the honey that was, that, you know, draws the flies, if you will. That's not the gentle answer that he was talking about. To truly showcase the love of Christ, you have to show that love of God to everyone. To everyone. Does anybody pop into your head when you think of hard people to share the gospel with? People that's hard to show love to? Yeah, those are probably the ones God wants you to show love to, right? But if you really want to showcase it, show it to people you don't like or people that don't deserve it. Because even people you don't like Right can experience love when they see it in action in you. They know they don't deserve love and kindness from you. They know that. So when you show them love and kindness and they know they don't deserve it, it makes an effect in their life. It just impacts them in a way I can't explain. But one thing I did find, you might find that once you start showing people God's love, even the people you don't like, the people you are constantly at odds with, when you start showing God's love, it kind of changes the way they react to you you'll see things starting to change, right? I've had people come to me who are frustrated about how people treat them. And they sit in counseling and tell me that, you know, this guy's impossible. I know, no matter what I do, he's a jerk to me. And they go on and on. And I tell them what they don't want to hear. I go, well, listen, why don't you just, you know, kill them with kindness? Why don't you just show them more love than they could possibly imagine, even though they don't deserve it? And they look at me like, okay, next suggestion. You know what I mean? Because nobody wants to hear that. But I told them, just try. And... What I've found when people take that advice is there's this troubling commonality I don't think people think about. I've, I've found that people generally receive the kind of treatment that they get. Generally, people kind of receive the kind of treatment that they get. So if you want to change how other people treat you, change how you treat other people and treat them with the love of God, and you will see things change. Now, here's something you don't realize. The Bible tells us to love everyone doesn't tell us to like everyone. Now that sounds terrible, doesn't it? But the truth of the matter is, there were people Jesus didn't like, but he loved all of them. 
Now, there are people, listen, I'm not going to say which one it is, but there are people that I'm their pastor and I don't like them. But if they called me and said, I need you to be at my bedside, I'm sick, I'll be there. If they call me because one of their children's in the hospital, I'll be there. If they want to meet with me because they're having marital problems, I'll meet with them. That shows that I love them. Now, if they ask me to go golfing, I'm probably going to say no, you know, because, you know, there's no nice way to go, I just don't like you, you know what I mean? (laughs) But love is an action. You show people love by the way you treat them, and when you treat people different, they treat you different. You know, as believers, we're supposed to be God's messengers. That's what we're supposed to be, His messengers of the gospel here on earth. But if people don't like the messenger, it's highly unlikely that they're going to listen to the message. That's just the way it is. So... If God's messengers aren't kind, they're probably not effective either. And here's the, this is a tough one. If you're a jerk, you're probably not reaching too many people for Jesus. If you're that moody, grumpy person, don't point at them. If you're that, I should have never said this. If you're that moody, grumpy person, you're probably not effective for Christ. You know the people that say, this is just how I am. Well, you are a jerk. That's just how you are, and and you're not effective because people don't want to be around you, but they're not going to hear anything you have to say. If you want to be effective, you have to be kind. And that's why Paul encourages readers time and time again, not just here, to be kind. Look at Ephesians 4.31. He says, let all bitterness... Anybody ever been bitter? Bitter is when you're angry with somebody and don't do what God told you to do, which is go work it out. So anger, when it turns cold bitterness. Okay, it's bitterness. It says, let all bitter, bitterness and wrath, which is outburst, and anger, and clamor, uh, and slander, be put away from you along with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Here's the kicker. Forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has what? Forgiven you. You know when the Bible says if you don't forgive, you can't be forgiven? That's not saying you can't be saved. What that's saying is don't come to me praying that I forgive you for your missteps that day when you won't forgive your neighbor. You're being a hypocrite. Go talk to him and then we'll talk. Okay, this is what he's talking about. So if you struggle with kindness as a believer, you need to check your life out and find out why. You need that. That's something you can't put off and you can't dismiss it by saying, that's just how I am. People say that like that's, you know, an excuse. That's just how I am. Well, what if just how you are is violent? Should I just let you punch me every time you're around me? You know what I mean? It doesn't matter that, that you think that's just how you are. It's going to destroy your ministry, and you need to find out why. Because there's too much at stake for believers, especially in the day and in the times we live in, to let your personal issues hinder your kindness, which is hindering your sharing of the gospel. So that's why he took the time on kindness. Now, jealous. How many people, the Bible says love is not jealous, First Corinthians 13, 4. It says love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. How many people have ever had to deal with someone who's jealous? Raise your hand. Is that a pleasant experience? It is not a pleasant experience. Jealousy is one of the most cruel things one human can do to the other. That's why Paul wanted to talk about this. So next, Paul not only shares what love is, he also tells us what love isn't. And love definitely is not jealous. Now the Greek word used here for jealous is zelo. And zelo means, this is going to shock you, zelo means actively striving for or to have a burning desire for something. That's what it means. Okay, let me explain. Now, at times, jealousy can be positive. Rarely, but it can be positive. The only time I've seen it be positive is when 
it was God saying he was a jealous God. Look at Deuteronomy 4.24. Deuteronomy 4.24. It says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a what? A jealous God. Right? Mean, and what this means is that God has this burning desire to have a relationship with you. He has, that his focus is to have a relationship with you. That's the very definition of the word in the Greek for jealous. But however, in this main text we're with today, jealousy is used as a negative context. It means to actively strive for or to desire the abilities or possessions of someone else or of others. Okay, so when someone becomes jealous, right, it means that they are desiring something they do not have to the point that it's actually hindering them. Okay, that's what it's talking about. Now, when someone becomes jealous, and there's probably a lot more than this, but there's at least four things that it reveals about them. Okay, four things. The first thing that jealousy reveals in a person is discontentment. All right, because de jealousy displays a lack of contentment with what God has already given you. So jealousy says, what you gave me isn't enough. I want more. That's what jealousy says. See, the Corinthians, the reason Paul wrote this is most likely the Corinthians were jealous of each other's gifts. Remember, they loved the philosophers of their time. They loved the great orators, the great speakers, that is, or the great, they loved those who were, who were into prophecy. They loved people that were up in front of everybody and receiving respect and praise. That's what they loved. So they were probably jealous of those who had the gift of prophecy and teaching if they didn't have it because they thought that was the important gift. And the most important gift in your life is the one God gave you. Because he gave it to you because you're the one who can do it most effectively. Or he wouldn't have given it to you. Right? So likely they were jealous of each other's spiritual gifts. Uh, and they just thought that theirs weren't as important. The second thing that jealousy reveals in a person is selfishness. Okay? Because it reveals that we've become entitled. We think that we deserve anything we want. I don't want this gift, God. I should have the gift I want. You know what's funny? Sometimes I wish God would answer that prayer. Because if you're not called to it, you are going to stink at it when you try. You know, I'm not called to be on the praise team. And if I pick up a guitar and put a mic at my mouth, you will know why. I always tell people, if you don't think I'm called to preach, I'll sing for you. Then you're going to go, no, 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 please preach. You see what I mean? And sometimes I wish God would, would, would play into that selfishness and say, okay, okay. You want to be a great public speaker? Go ahead. I want you to go speak in front of a few hundred people and let's see how you do. Because if God didn't call you to do that, that can be a train wreck. I've literally sat and listened to people that I think were not in their calling. I'll never forget Scotty and I were at a pastor's conference. And it was hilarious. We went in and we really wanted to see a couple speakers. We were there to see you know, a couple keynote speakers. This one guy who was an author got up to speak. Now his gift was writing. It was not speaking. So he gets up with like a novel of war and peace for an outline. And he goes like this and he straightens it up and he sets it down. And he puts this lozenge in his mouth, a cough drop something. <laughs> and you know you're distracted when all you can hear is the lozenge clicking on his teeth when he's talking. That's all I remember really. So he looks at this like 30 page outline and his head stayed like this the whole time. And he would read it and turn a page. And every once in a while when he made an emphasis point he'd go back down the guy had as much personality as a rock and and so scotty starts to drift off right and i elbow him i'm like what's wrong with you 10 minutes later i felt his elbow as he wakes me up 
hour and 20 minutes of that man reading. And click, 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 click. <laughs> I would love, it would probably not have been kind, but I wanted to tell him, I think you should stick to writing, my friend. You know, you have a lot more personality behind the keyboard. But, you know, we're selfish. We want what we want. We're entitled. We think we should get what we want. And I think jealousy reveals that. The third thing that jealousy reveals in a person is low self-esteem. Okay, because jealous people feel like they're not as good as those who have the other gifts. Right? They're better than them. So they envy what those people have and even resent them for having it. Listen, I know somebody that's glaring in my mind right now. I won't say their name unless you pay me. But, you know, they, um, I know this guy who, he likes music and stuff. He's just, he's okay. But anybody who's better than him is a big show off. And they don't love God. They're just doing it for show. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, I would be afraid to say that. You know what I mean? Judge another man's service. I'd be, a, if somebody is a more effective speaker than them, then they're a show off. You know, basically, if you want to be a good speaker and singer, you've got to be him. <laughs> That's basically what it comes down to. But he literally resents people because his jealousy is overriding his faith and his conscience because he sees people and wants what they have so bad that he can't even focus on his own gifts. Because jealousy reveals that we are, we are, we're just the kind of people, in my opinion, who have a low self-esteem anyway. Because the whole world tells us what good is and we believe it. You know what I mean? Have you ever noticed that over time they tell you what weight is beautiful? Right? Over time they tell you what house is acceptable. And I think it just by nature makes us the kind of people who are jealous. I love what Ben Franklin said. He said, It is the eyes of other people that ruin us. If all but myself were blind, I should want neither a fine house nor fine furniture. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Very, very true. Now, the fourth thing that jealousy reveals about a person uh, is that they become distracted. Because instead of developing their own gifts, they envy the gifts they don't have, the gifts that other people have. And listen, jealousy is this ravenous beast that once you feed it, is never full. It never goes away. It's never enough when you become jealous. And that's why the enemy loves us to be jealous, because he knows it's going to keep us discontent and distracted and miserable and not effective for him. So he loves it when we're jealous, right? And jealousy, if you're the victim of it, I'll never forget, I was, I was a jealous guy. And, and I, when I met my wife, I had some girlfriends that probably made me that way. And I remember when we were dating one time, she, I was jealous all the time. And one time she looked at me and she said, listen, I haven't done anything to make you not trust me. She said, this either ends or we're done. And you know what? Miraculously, I stopped being jealous. You know, it, it, she cured me. And to this day, you know, that, that, that old me has been buried. But it is cruel, and, it, and it's just distracting, and it ruins our, our testimony. Now, there are ways we can help uh, keep spiritual jealousy from taking root in our, in our lives. And, and the way you combat that is we should first remember that as believers, we're all supposed to be on the same team. Right? If you're familiar with sports, listen, if you're, if you're in basketball, if you're not a center, then you want one on your team that's good. That makes you a better team right if you're not a shooting guard you need a good shooting guard to make you a better team each position plays a pivotal role on that team right 
And the same thing is true at, with, with believers. We're supposed to be on the, the same team. And true love is not only content with, uh, content with the gift that we have, but it's thankful for the gifts that other people have. I'm thankful for the gifts that other people have because they make the team stronger. You know, as a pastor, I know a lot of pastors who want to do everything. If you think you're the smartest person in the room, you're just proving you're really not. Listen, you need to have people who are strong at what you are weak at. You know, good leaders allow good leaders to lead. Surround yourself with people that strengths are your weaknesses. And be thankful that you have them. As believers, we should be thankful that there's people who can sing. We should be thankful that there's people who have a merciful spirit. We should be thankful for the people who are prayer warriors, the preachers, the deacons, the people who write the letters, the people who, I mean, there's so many gifts out there. We should be thankful for each and every one of them. Because I tell you what, as long as they're staying in their lane, they make the team stronger and they make us more productive and they make us more positive. And I'll tell you what, the ones who beat that jealousy and learn to appreciate other people's gifts find that their life is pretty joyful once they're focused on what they're supposed to be focused on. And that's what God has done for you. Now, love does not brag and is not arrogant. Let me check my time here. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Again, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. So next, Paul describes two similar but different behaviors that work against love. Paul discusses the external. Now listen to this external sin of pride. That's an external sin, and it's, it's manifested in bragging and boasting. External sin means that everybody can see it and recognize it, okay? Now, the word brag in the Greek, this is a tough one to say, is periperuomai, meaning public boasting, public boasting. When believers brag about their abilities, they're just sharing their deception and denial with others, okay? By bragging, they're actually claiming that their, their abilities are their own. They're taking God's credit for their abilities. That's what bragging is all about. Taking credit for the gifts that God has given them. The end result is that God is not glorified and His kingdom is served. That's the end result of that. When believers fail to glorify God in word and in deed, they also sin in word and deed. If you're not glorifying God. Listen to what James said, James 4.16. He said, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Notice he used both those words. I'll explain that. But as, as it is, you boast in uh, in your arrogance. All such boasting is is evil, right? God is honored when we publicly acknowledge Him as the source of our gifts, right? Listen, I, there's a story that scared me to death when I first got saved. I'm not going to lie. But you know, in the Bible where it talks about Herod was speaking, and people were saying, these aren't the words of a man, but a God. You guys remember what happened? The worms ate him. I don't know why that traumatized me, but it traumatized me. So I'm not real good with compliments. When someone says they like something, I say, well, praise God. I appreciate that. Because I don't want to get ate by worms. You know what I mean? I'm just saying. I don't want to get ate by worms. So God is honored when we acknowledge Him as the source of our gifts. Now I want to read this. I'm going to try to hurry. The former college and pro football player and current TV sports analyst, Tim Tebow. How many people know who that is? I hope so. Tim Tebow is a perfect illustration of godly humility, and they tried to silence him. You ever notice that in, on, in sports arenas and sports circles, anytime you bring up Tebow, they always talk about what he wasn't good at and how he was. It's amazing how he was such a terrible quarterback and won all those national championships. You know, it's amazing. But they also didn't like the fact that he had John Street 316 on his face and couldn't stop talking about God. So it doesn't shock me that the sports world hated him. 
but you know, despite that, it didn't change anything. It didn't change a, a thing about him, and so he's still a great example. So here's a quote from his Heisman Trophy acceptance speech, and I just gave you a bit of it because it was a lot. He said, I'd just like to first start off by thanking my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave me the ability to play football and gave me a great family, support group, and great coaches and everything around me. God gave me the ability to play football, and I'm not just trying to go out there... Um, I'm sorry, and I'm just trying to go out there and honor him with it and just be as passionate and enthusiastic about it as I can, Tebow reiterated. It's a, uh, it's a game that I love, uh, and you've got to remember that he gave me the ability and the opportunity to play it, and it can be gone at any moment. This is like a 20-some-year-old kid saying that when he... Can you imagine the temptation to soak up the light there? I mean, of course, how did he win these high Because he was so terrible, according to ESPN. But anyway, he did win it. And this was, this was his acceptance speech, and there was a lot more to it. And, you know, as a result of that faith and as a result of that humility, you know, as an athlete and as a believer in general, he has had a very successful career before and after football. He's still successful, no matter what they say about him. But most importantly, he has a very, he's always been a very successful servant of God. For example, I, I watched this thing. I found it was tough for me not to cry because I watched inmates at a Florida correctional facility and this is Tim Tebow in college this is when he was in college he goes to a prison in Florida and would preach to the inmates and I watched one of those messages, they recorded it and when he was done they were broken hearted inmates with tears streaming down their face going down there and praying with them and you know what people said about it? Well they're probably not sincere I'm like well thank you Captain Happy Joy you know what about 30 of them went down so maybe one of them did which would make it all worth it I'd like to think they all were, were sincere. You know, call me the, the incurable optimist. But I saw that, and it literally made me want to cry because all they heard was him bragging on God and saying, I know you're in an impossible situation, but don't, the only reason I'm here is because God put me here. It was just absolutely amazing and the total opposite uh, of, of bragging and, and arrogance. So Tim Tebow's life proves that if any person, any business, I mean, any, any group can focus on glorifying God, and not just with their words, but their actions and their abilities. They find that, you know, God's going to make their abilities and resources reach so much farther than they ever imagined. He always does. And this is the verse that comes to mind, Ephesians 3, 20, 21. It says, Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, do I have time to cover the love of arrogance? Probably not. Okay, I told you I wouldn't finish. I warned you. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you would. Please bow your head. If this is your first time, we always like to give a, a brief invitation. And by brief, I mean we're not going to ask you to come up front or anything like that. I just like to have the opportunity to pray for you. Because I remember sitting out there and what it meant to me when that pastor, who I didn't know, who preached my life back to me, said, I want to pray for you. So every head is bowed. If anyone here would like me to pray for them, I don't know what the situation may be. Where, bless those people where you stand with God, problems. I don't need to know. Bless those people. But I am going to pray for you. Bless those people. And I, I do. Bless those people. I don't just say it. I do it. Bless those people. And I know, I know that whatever it is you're seeking, by praying, you're seeking the right source. Bless those people. And if you're listening or watching online, God knows your heart. I'll be praying for you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your kindness and 
especially for your grace, because if it wasn't for your grace, we would be doomed. None of us deserve heaven. None of us are good. The only thing good in me is you. And I know that if you hadn't sent your son to die, I would have never been righteous enough. I would have never been good enough. And I would have been doomed. But you sent your son to die on my behalf so that all I had to do was believe in what he did and trust that for my eternal life and you promised it to me. And that promise stands true today. So for someone who doesn't know you, I pray whatever's holding them back, they just remove it from their mind and remember that you died for them just like they are. And if they can believe that what he did was enough, your word promises they'll have eternal life. If they make that decision, I'd love to talk to them. And God, for those of us who are believers, we need to be more gracious, God. There's a reason people don't like us and we've bought and paid for it. And I know that. God, bless us to be less judgmental, less full of ourselves, less proud. And let us remember what it feels like to be on the outside looking in and how awesome it felt to know that we had a loving God that would open the door. Give us a heart that opens the door to people who need you. That's kind and loving. Because we know the time is short, and we want to see the borders of the kingdom as large and larger as much as they can be. And we just thank you for all you do. We ask you to go with us as we leave here and keep us safe and let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise and all the honor and glory that you're so worthy of.